Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore who Jesus is, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into God's Word and what He has to teach us today. So listen in as we jump into what God has in store. This is a real fun place to start the morning, Um, and I might just kick back and stay here for the rest of the message. Um, We're so excited. Chloe, we've already introduced you this morning, but I'll just go ahead and say this is her husband, Jacob. Um, They've been married for 27 years, and um, no, I'm just kidding. How long have you guys been married now? A little over a year. Congratulations. I celebrate that. That's awesome. Um, And I told him this week, kind of leading up to this little interview time, um, that they had the questions in advance, so they'd be prepared. Um, but I might throw him a curveball, which is kind of scary in the moment. Okay, so here's the curveball. Today is a very big event in the life of our country, in the life of everywhere, in the world, apparently. Um, who are you guys pulling for in the Super Bowl? Jacob? Bang, bang, okay. Niner gang. Some people are happy with what you just said. Others may not be, but don't tune out. That's awesome. How about you? I'm also rooting for the 49ers just because Jacob's you married really into big it. Fans. There you go. She gets Yes, but I also yes. like Taylor Swift, so... Yes, somebody Ooh, asked me this morning, like, who do you want to win tonight? I was like, Usher? I don't know, like, I'm not, not exactly sure. Okay, so on to the real questions, because we're in a series that's called Live in Love, and we are highlighting the opportunity for marriage resources to be made available at the life of our church. Um, and so, really quickly, how did you guys meet? Really quickly, how did you guys meet? Yeah, so, funny story, we actually met working at McDonald's. High quality, a fine yep, establishment. awesome. Some some yes. call it the golden arches, um, but little background to that, we were working there because we were on this summer kind of mission trip slash college retreat through our, we were went to different schools in Kentucky, but we were there for a summer thing to our same campus ministry, um, and they just plug you into a job so you can outreach the community, get to know, you know, those around you. And so, yeah, we met in the kitchen. Hey, did you do all of the McDonald's? food jobs, like, at different times? Well, I was the grill master. That's impressive. this nickname. Yeah, so, which really just, you just push two yeah. buttons and it does it for that's you, awesome. pretty much. But, I'd like uh, to be the one that drops yeah. the fries. I think that'd be, be kind of, yeah. I don't I have no idea. Okay, so, back to marriage. What is the biggest <laughs> joy and the biggest yeah, challenge the biggest for you guys so far? Yeah, so. Yeah, so like Jacob shared about the story of, of how we met, we were pretty young when we met. So I was 19, he was 20, and I think we would, we would admit we had a lot of maturing and growing up to, to do. Um, and so I think we went through, I mean, to be honest, we went through a lot of hard things um, in dating and engagement. And so we had to learn a lot of those hard things, like how to communicate with each other in a way that was lifting the other person up and not tearing them down and resolving conflict. Um, that was something we definitely really struggled with in, um, early so in our relationship. 
And so had we have gotten married earlier, I would have said any number of those things. Um, but looking back now, I can see that it was actually God's grace that we went through a lot of that because I think it set us up really well walking into marriage, you know, having some of those those tools in our pocket, so to speak. Um, but something I think we didn't expect to be a challenge um, is just the need to establish boundaries at time in marriage. Um, and by that, I mean we have really great friends, awesome families that are so supportive of our marriage and us as people. But... Um, at times it does require us to, to know, like, this is, when, when you get married, this is your primary family now, and at times you have to protect your time or establish boundaries as needed, like, with knowing even decisions that you make that it's about, you know, what's best for us, you know, and that may not be understood at all times by other people in our lives, and, um, and that's okay. But it's led to great conversations, I think, between us, between family members and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that was a challenge we didn't quite expect, um, but, you know, we're walk, are walking through now. Um, and then for greatest joy, I would say just the safety that you feel in marriage, and it's just unlike any other relationship, and I think that's that's why God calls it a covenant or a commitment. It's just that you can come to the other person with your greatest hopes and dreams, your biggest worries and fears, truly as yourself, and they are going to love and support you, walk with you through that. Um, and so I'd say that that's so far, it's only been a year, but so far that's our greatest Both of those are incredible. And if you, if you can learn those during the first year, you save yourselves a lot of heartache along the way and just and enjoy a lot of blessings that come with it. Okay, real quick. How do you keep Christ at the center of all that? Yeah, a couple ways we try to do this practically is just starting our morning off, getting into the word together and spending time in prayer together. Um, we're not perfect at it, but that's what we aim to do, and every day we do it, is that that's our first thing. The, day, the rest of the day goes a lot better. So, um, and then like she was saying, just being with that safety, and, and we can be completely open and vulnerable with each other, what we're going through, what's stressing us out, fears we might have, or anybody that might be on our heart that we want to pray for, friends and family. Um, as a quick example, one thing recently, we've been kind of trusting Christ with and uh, trying to keep him at the center of is a career change that I'm going through kind of coming from a super stable to very uncertain um, job I guess so she's been encouraging me through that um, supporting me but also pointing me back to Christ and that you know we can trust him together through this time of uncertainty now, I will say this, you know, Paul wrote, we'll talk about Paul this morning in some of his letters, and one of them they wrote to kind of a young protege in ministry, Timothy, um, he writes, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, um, and at 53 and 54 years old, you guys are, you look incredible, um, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but instead, set an example, and you are, for believers, um, and he gave five areas, like speech, life, love, which we're talking about faith and impurity um and so god's good in all that so thank you guys for sharing today i appreciate you being here this morning all right give them a hand thanks so for coming okay so we are in a series called live in love and some of you are going i get it um, and i want to talk first kind of about the elephant in the room um, this idea even of what we emphasize over here this this picture of marriage um because some in the room are um, and we are, my wife Susan and I will celebrate 24 years this year in the summer. Um, it's our Jack Bauer year, and we're super excited about that. 
um, one person got the reference, that's okay. Um, and so here we are looking at 24 years, feels like been two, like I love it, it's great. And, and then I know that we're looking at like longer, more seasoned marriages in the room. I know that we're looking at a couple of pending marriages in the room, which is exciting, and we want to celebrate with you. And I know we're also, um, at the same time, um, looking at broken marriages in the room, and then looking at the heartache that goes along with that. Um, and looking at the challenges that come with the need to be healed. And, and then also looking at the uh, never been married, never want to be married, so how does this even apply to me context? I, I want to say that, that this specific word and every single detail in it is not first and foremost a letter to married people and everybody else just jump in and glean whatever you can and when you can. There is a significant part of this Live in Love series that emphasizes and focuses in on the idea of what Chloe said, covenant marriage, and, and it is inherently accessible only to people that are in that unique and safe sacred call in their life to be covenanted, to be, to be one with someone else. And if you're in this room and you married in the life of the church as two believers coming together in faith, someone did tell you or someone should have told you that the marriage that you enter into is supposed to be a reflection of the gospel story so that other people look at you and see the way that Christ loves the church. So that other people look at you and see the relationship that any one of us can have, married or single, with God our Father. We are supposed to live our lives painting a picture of what that gospel is. And so in that vein, we need every marriage in the room, whether you're in that marriage or whether you're single people looking at that marriage, judging that marriage, wishing you had that, regardless of who we are in the room today, we need every single marriage to win. Like we need it to win because it's a picture of the gospel that people outside of this room get to see reflected inside this room. And more than anything else in life, we want them to see Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us. And when marriages suffer, we all suffer because the evangelical witness that we have to the rest of the world is tainted. We need it to win. We want it to be good. We say that exact same thing to people in the room who are walking through a new singleness, walking through the loss of a spouse, walking through um, a, a broken relationship. We need all that to heal. Uh, we need it to heal and we need it to be whole because the way that you live your life in connection with the community and the body of believers in this church and the way that you reflect the good nature of that gospel and what it means to be a part of a family, we need that to win so that other people can get a better picture of who Jesus is and how very much he loves us. I'll give you a, a couple stats um, that I learned. Um, while it still remains the highest on average of the rate of divorce between 25 and 39-year-olds, those are the folks who are getting divorced the most, they've actually seen a significant dip in the last 15 years in the overall rate, and that's a good thing. We can celebrate that. At the same time, we've seen an increase, about 15% increase in the rate of divorce between 40 to 49-year-olds, and this is the one that probably will blow your mind. Among those over the age of 50, the divorce rate has doubled in the last 15 years. So it, it doesn't, in that respect, necessarily get any easier it may, in fact, get more challenging, and it may, in fact, be more important that we dive into a moment that's just like this. It's right and good that we as a church kind of pause the bride of Christ for the sake of our corporate witness and do what we can to strengthen marriages. If you're in a marriage or if you're looking at marriage and you want to understand marriage, if you're in the crisis of marriage, first of all, let me say, so often in the life of our marriages, we as a church and as a helping profession, my wife's a counselor, uh, counselors in the helping profession, 
they don't often, we don't often hear about a marriage that's in crisis until it's like category five hurricane. Do they measure hurricanes in categories? I don't know, but that's like the biggest. (laughs) And and it'd be so good if we kind of knew with advanced warning, hey, there's trouble in paradise. Hey, we might need some support. Hey, we need some tools in our toolbox to understand how to live and do this a little bit better. We as a church want to always make available, and this series, we're highlighting it a little more, the idea of marriage resources, whether that's counseling, whether that's preparing for marriage, whether that's restoring a marriage, whether that's dealing with the aftermath of a broken marriage. We want to be a people who engage that. There's a card over here with a little backdrop to my left, your right. You can pick that up, scan the QR code, and dive in to the ways that that might support you. It's important for us that marriages win, but single people in the room, whether that means you're widowed and you're now doing life apart from the partner that you spent your life with and you did not know that it was going to last this long, we want to walk with you. Maybe it's after a broken relationship and divorce is part of your story. Maybe it's not yet married. Maybe it's would like to be married. Maybe it's, oh, I never, ever, ever want to do that. Don't tune out. Don't disconnect. Let me encourage you to stay plugged in. Don't take off because there is something in this chapter, in this book, on this page, in this story for every single one of us. And we'll even get to that as we look at Paul's letters. I want to read you an excerpt from a book called Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's a fantastic book, and in it she has a chapter that's on love, and she writes this. In our culture today, it's easy to believe that sexual romantic love is the peak of human intimacy, followed closely by parental love. Within this mentality, it's easy for Christians, that's me and you, like it's easy for us to come to the table and believe that the nuclear family is the real locus for lasting love. Jesus torpedoed that idea with these words. He said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. She writes, according to Jesus, Friendship is not the poor cousin of romantic love. Self-sacrificing friendship love is just as good as any other kind. Rather than prioritizing the nuclear family above all else, Jesus stressed the family of the church, which is composed of all of us, regardless of our relationship status. One day while he was teaching, Jesus did this. He heard that his mother and his brothers were outside and they were waiting to speak to him. He replied, who is my brother and who are, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, his friends, his comrades in ministry, he says, here is my mother. I kind of wonder like, which one was he making eye contact when he called him his mama? I don't know, that's a little weird. Here is my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is brother and sister and mother. Jesus was not denigrating the nuclear family. He was not downplaying covenant marriage. He was setting it in its proper context. The blood-bought brotherhood and sisterhood of the church. And it's on that diving board that we dive into the pool of what it means for us to be a people regardless of relationship status, to reflect the love that we've experienced in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. We're asking a question this morning. How can we grow? How can I? How can I grow in love? 
and, and we'll offer a couple of different answers to that question this morning, but it's an important one to kind of focus on for a second, and I want to draw a dotted line to the series that we just experienced. In fact, if you didn't get to participate because it was like, I don't know, cold and snowy outside, or you were out of town on a holiday weekend or something like that, you missed the Heaven series that we just engaged with this idea that like, hey, all of a sudden we recognize that we're living in last days, and every generation of believers in Jesus Christ has, has called it out and said we're living in the last days, and if we're not living in the last days, we're certainly living closer to the last days than we were yesterday. So we dove into this idea of heaven and what it means to be believers. We spent a lot of time in Matthew chapter 24, and Jesus said these words. We didn't highlight those, but I'm going to read them today. He says, because of the increase of wickedness, and most of us would raise our hand and say, over the course of your life, there has been some level of uptick in wickedness in the world, some level of uptick in difficulty in the world, some level of uptick of crime in the world, some level of uptick in crazy, I'm going to be opposite of what God calls us to be in this world, uptick in the world. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. It's a waning, fading love. But he says, hey, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And when we look around at the wickedness in the world and we see a decrease in the idea of love, what we want to be as a people who are on the increase in the idea of love, maybe in the margins of your papers this morning or send yourself a text message. Some people use the notes app. I just send myself text messages. Sometimes in the middle of the night when I wake up with a suspicious thought, I will send myself a text message so that I don't forget it in the morning. It's the equivalent of my mother-in-law leaving a notebook by her bed. There it is. Maybe make a note out in the margins this morning. Who is it in my life that I need to grow in love for? And you're like, well, what if they're sitting right next to me? Um, I don't know, maybe make a code word because you don't want to like feel awkward. Do whatever you need to do. But who is it that you need to have some sort of increase of your love for? Because we see that in our lives. We see an increase of wickedness, and we see a waning of love, the idea of falling out of love or a decrease of love. So Paul, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 3 as we start, and then we'll dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This whole picture of Paul traveling around in all of these missionary journeys, you can read about him in the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 17, his second missionary journey. He makes it to a city called Thessalonica, and it's an important trade city for the Macedonians. Like This is, this is an important city. And he goes there and he sees countless people, Jewish brothers, but mostly Gentile converts, turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And in this particular church, it was full of young believers, people who were young in their faith and brand new. It began in AD 51, it was filled with young converts. And so he goes on to the next town, and eventually he sends his young protege, Timothy, who I mentioned before, he sends him back to Thessalonica just to do a check-in on the church. Couldn't email him, couldn't call him on the phone. He had to send a messenger to go check and see how they're doing. And Timothy comes back with a really favorable report. He tells them all the great things that they're doing in spite of the fact that they're facing wild persecution and that the days are difficult for them. He brings a good report, but he also brings a list of questions that they have. And so Paul, in an effort to answer those questions, writes them a couple of letters, including these words from 1 Thessalonians 3. 12. May the Lord, he's like, hey, God is the one that's doing this. He's the only one capable of it. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for your spouses. No, he didn't write that. He said, may your love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else, just as ours, me and my traveling companions, does for you. So we got a big time disclaimer this morning. That this book, 1 Thessalonians, and then this book, this whole, this whole Bible of it, does not have more to say to married people than it does to unmarried people. So everybody hang with me. 
Because we're going to dive into a super familiar passage of Scripture, one from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've been to a wedding that took place in a church, you have heard this passage read out loud, and you have associated all the words that go with it. Oh, that's for married people. No, this is for all God's people. And so we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and what we want to say this morning on the question of how we grow in love. Like, how can I grow in love? How can I increase in love? Rather than waning and decreasing my love, how can it grow and mature? And like, this is, I, first I got to be operating under the right description. Because the world offers us a ton of counterfeits, a ton of perversions, a ton of different directions that we could go in. In fact, the world, with all of the songs and all of the movies and all of the ideologies, gives us nothing more than a really pale comparison and sometimes even a false interpretation of what real love is. And you can grow all day long in worldly love and still be left empty. So, so we want to grow in, in the right kind of love, so we got to operate under the right kind of description. And if you've been to a wedding, you've heard these words, and so we're going to read them starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, like if I am the best biblical interpreter of all, and have a faith that can move mountains, and imagine that, but I do not have love, Paul writes, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship so that I may boast, that I, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And then he says these words, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It keeps no, it's not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Read this last line with me. Love never fails. If you're operating with the right definition of love. If you're understanding love as God's love and God's love only. This morning in your notes, you have a picture of what all of those things are according to what love does and what love doesn't do. No, so, so what love does this morning, it, we're looking at it, and I'm like, okay, I can, I can probably um, maybe give myself a little bit of a report card, um, and I'm not going to make eye contact with Susan because I don't want her facial expression to tell me that I'm getting it wrong or getting it right in this moment. So I would say that on the what love does category, I would probably mark that I need to do better in patience, that, that I need to be someone who operates more steadily and more easily in kindness. Um, and I, I probably in, in some ways need to look at the idea of trust. That's probably a holdover from my childhood, but everybody's got a story, and so here we are. I could, I could mark, th don't mark them all, because that's just too much, too much, too much too soon, but pick a couple and, and mark them down and say, okay, these are the areas where I need the Lord, because remember, he's the one giving the increase. He's the one giving the overflow. These are the areas that I need the Lord to work on in my life so that I can be a person who's increasing in patience and increasing in kindness and increasing in trust, increasing in hope, increasing in endurance, to be a person who's marked more by love. And then these are the, this is the what love doesn't do um, that I'm really, really good at. Like, I'm super good at being proud. I think we kind of both are. Um, Susan and I are both firstborn, and we, we, um, we enjoy being right. Like, it's, it's not even occasional. Like, we really love being right. And we also take pleasure when the other one is wrong and it's obvious. Like, it's like, it's a little bit of a competition where, where we, we, sometimes we like being right more than we like each other. So, so maybe that one's the one that you want to mark. Or maybe there's another one. 
mm, I can operate in anger sometimes. And I am so, y'all, I have a memory like nobody's business. Let me tell you what I can do. I can keep score. Um, I, I have a good memory and I can add. Like I know like who's tipping the scale on that one. And so maybe you want to make a little bit of a report card for yourself this morning. And it's not a report card as much as it is a prayer list. It's an opportunity for you to dive in and to figure out these are the areas where I need to pray and ask God to work on in my life. I want to operate with the right definition of love and I want to increase in specific areas of love in my life where I'm deficient because I'm human and because I'm a sinner. I need God to do more. And then what we understand is that it's all a spectrum where we're growing in faith and we're growing in an opportunity to look like Jesus. The next thing for us to understand is maturity. Like, we're just not the same as we were when we were 19. And we're also just not the same as we're going to be when we're 20, but we don't want to be on the increase in wickedness. We want to be on the increase in love. Paul writes at the conclusion of that chapter, he's like, hey, when I became a man, I put away my childhood. I put the ways of childhood behind me. And there are some things, if we're being really honest with ourselves, if we're like really getting vulnerable in the moment and we're being really, really intentional about accountability in our life, then we will look and say, there are some areas in my life where I just need to flat out grow up. Stop being a baby. We have a conference coming up for men, so I'll highlight the men. And like some of us, we need to quit being babies because God has called us to a level of maturity. And there are men out there, and women too, curing diseases, leading corporations, changing the face of the planet, and then coming home and behaving like toddlers because they didn't get their way. There's this, this avenue and this aspect, and it's super modern. Maybe other cultures and other generations have dealt with this, but there's this whole picture of like, oh, I just want to be authentic. I want to be my authentic self. I just want to be, like, I'm not going to put on any facades. I'm just going to be authentically me. The problem with me being authentically me is I'm a sinner, and I'm authentically sinful and authentically selfish. Authenticity, a lot of times, it's a good thing, but it can also be the enemy of humility, Authenticity might be the enemy of humility. Because so many times while we're just out there being ourselves and saying our truth, we're forgetting to be his and speak the truth. The world doesn't need me to be authentically me. The world needs me to be humbly like Jesus. And that's different. We'll need more Nick Allen out there. We need more Christ-likeness. And so there is an aspect of our lives where we want to be honest, because, you know, you don't lie, and, and you want to be truthful, and you want to be vulnerable, but it ought to lead to a place of humility in our lives where we recognize the need to be discipled into a mature faith that looks like Jesus. We don't want to be the best version of me that I can be. I want to be the clearest picture of Christ that I can be. And that takes us to the final thing that we want. you got to understand the description got to know what love is if you're going to grow in it. You've got to understand that this is a spectrum and that we are all moving towards maturity, and the idea is that we would be closer to a picture of Christ-like love tomorrow than we were yesterday. And then finally, we can never, ever lose sight. We never graduate. We never lose sight of, and we never lose the weight of sacrifice. Love ought to cost, 
it ought to hurt, and not just because the song says it, but because it's the reality of the love that's been given to us and the love that we've been called to extend towards others. Jesus said it. We already quoted it, said it last week. Probably going to say it next week, too, on repeat for a series that somehow others might think is all about marriage. Let me just go ahead and tell you, greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends that there ought to be a culmination of sacrificial love in us, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we used to be married, no matter where we are and no matter what status we find ourselves in life, if the goal is to increase in love, that means we will be on the uptick in sacrifice. Romantic love is not the end-all, be-all, best thing in the world that the world often makes it and that we ought to often assume it, but sacrificial love is. That's what we want. It's the essence of not just I'm going second, but I'm going last. It's the essence of considering, like Paul said about Jesus, others as better than ourselves. Y'all, maybe the worst, ooh, maybe the worst movie line that's been in my lifetime came from Tom Cruise as he played Jerry Maguire. And he said it at the end of the film to Dorothy Boyd, who was played by Academy Award winning actress Renee Zellweger. You complete me. married people. When we expect that, we're going to be disappointed and wildly exacerbated and probably angry in the process. Think of the pressure that you're putting on that other person to be everything for you that only happens in fairy tales. It only exists in movies. You complete no. It's asking another person on this planet to sit in a seat that only Jesus can occupy in our lives. Selfishness makes our relationships into idols. Oh, and when we as married people look at our marriage as the absolute best thing that ever happened to me, it's putting a lot of pressure on that other person and it's painting a picture for the world that says Jesus is somehow less or that he's only good because you got what you wanted. People who aren't married and maybe want to be married, if that's what you're out there looking for, one, I can just go ahead and tell you, spoiler alert, you're never going to find it. And if you think you found it, it's false. And if you think you found it, what you're really doing is settling for a pale comparison of the Savior that needs to sit on the throne of your life. And it's a world of heartache that will follow. Because anytime we idolize our relationships, worship that person or worship that status, A, we're sinning, and B, we will be suffering. Conversely, selflessness makes our relationships into offerings. What do you do with an idol? You worship it. What do you do with an offering? You lay it down. You leverage it. You use it as the thing that communicates the thing to the one you truly love. Our relationship status, whether single or married, is supposed to be a thing that we lay down on the altar of Jesus Christ to tell him how very much we love him. And it's the thing that we're supposed to leverage in life to reflect him back to a world that desperately needs to see him. If you go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in fact, if you kick it back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, y'all know that chapters and verses didn't come until much, much later in the picture. 
It was like from the ninth century that they started breaking the Bible apart and putting headings on things. And it took all the way to like the 1500s before we got the numbers that we see today. Y'all, we're lazy because we can look up a number system and find any verse that we want to. Imagine what they were doing in like AD 700. They just had to have this stuff memorized. A, they didn't have a copy in their own language and they couldn't read and write anyway. They just had to know what the word of God said. We can look it up. So at the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, love is the most excellent way. It's the most excellent way. And it's not just the most excellent way in marriage. It's not just the most excellent way in parenting. It's not just the most excellent way in na- It's the most excellent way. That word excellent, if you want to do a word study through the Greek language that the New Testament was originally written in, it's hyperbole. And some of y'all who are English scholars in the world and you like to teach grammar, and by teach grammar, I mean loosely impose grammar on other people who don't get it right. You know who you are. You heard the word hyperbole, the exaggeration of something, the increase of something. Love is the most excellent way. It's the most increased. We want it to be the thing that is growing and increasing and surpassing everything else in our lives. We'll kick it back even further in 1 Corinthians next week as we go to chapter 7, which is summed up with this. Paul writes, nevertheless, and he's coming on a chapter where he's highlighted the value of singleness, and he's talked about the challenges of marriage. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation we are in life, in whatever status we have in life, in whatever moment we find ourselves in life, we are to live as believers in whatever situation that the Lord, there's a sovereignty picture there, has assigned to us just as God called them. And Paul wrote this, hey, this is the rule that I lay down in all the churches for all the people. Love is the most excellent way. Operate as a believer in whatever situation you're in because that's how we reflect the love that we've been given in Christ. You want to grow in love, you've got to have the right definition. You've got to understand that it is a journey towards maturity where love ought to be on the increase. And if love is on the increase, so will your pain tolerance be. Because it's a sacrifice to love other people and to prioritize other people and to give yourself to all people in the name of Jesus. Can we pray together this morning? Maybe just for a second, close your eyes. And for just a moment, ask God, how is it that you're calling me to respond in this moment? Perhaps it's to first recognize that I need to settle my love relationship with you first. I need to recognize that the only way that I can love others, the only way that I can increase in love for others is by having a relationship with your son Jesus where I accept first his gift of forgiveness and understand that as a person who's been forgiven, I ought to be someone who is forgiving so maybe today's the day that you want to declare faith in Christ for the first time. I would love nothing more than you to check that box on the bottom of the connection card that you have this morning and drop it in the basket when it's passed later so that I can follow up with you later this week to tell you how happy I am that you're choosing to follow Christ and talk with you about what your next steps are. Perhaps it's baptism. Maybe it's uniting with this church body by becoming a partner and serving in some capacity. We know that God wants to grow our church. He wants to grow you, and he wants all of us collectively and individually to increase in love for others so that people can see how good he is. So Father, today, will you help us to increase and overflow in love and be a people who operate as believers in whatever situation and status we find ourselves in so that we can be the best possible reflections of your son that we can be. It's in his name that we pray today.
Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.